Well, before I get into the next edition in our found series, I just want to say a few things that have um, caught my mind this week. Uh, one big idea, and tell you a couple of things that fit under that. The big idea is this. Um, when we get up here and talk about life is meant to be shared, and we encourage you to attach yourself to the community here, um, we're not doing that ultimately so that we can say we have X amount of people in community. We're doing it so that you can be loved for, cared for, encouraged in your faith, and have people to do life with. This week alone, it's funny, you know, when our church first started, well, when it first started, there about 13 of us, but um, once it kind of went public, um, we still in those early days, like we knew everyone and we could go and visit everyone and kind of the staff, we could kind of be in touch with everyone. Um, But our church is no longer at that stage. And so I was just amazed this week, a couple, let me just give you some, without naming people, um, we had two babies born in our church this week, which is really exciting. Um, and, and also on Friday, we had some major cancer surgery in our church. And what's incredible is that all of these people are being cared for because on the front end, before those things arose, although if that's, something's going on, they had attached themselves to community. And so they were able to be cared for. Um, and, and in light of that whole cared for and attachment thing, um, I know those of you that have been with us, uh, at least from the early part of this year, about eight months ago, I stood up here on a Sunday. We had just gotten word inside the service that one of our main uh, epic people, like every week, everyone knows him had suffered a stroke. And from that time, we began to to pray for our friend Skip and to go visit him. And just amazing how many people had shown up and visited him. And uh, lo and behold, eight months later, Skip is in the house with us this morning. So Skip, we're thrilled that you're here. We're with you, man, all the way. And uh, let's continue to pray for Skip. His sister Carla's here with him. And uh, yeah, we, we are one, and this, I'm so glad that you're back with your family, and we're thrilled that you're back here. Many of you know that when we were at Howard, like from the very beginning, Skip would be the first person I'd come in and see at the building. He would run the front desk, letting people in, and then he would be the one you would see at the back door every time you left the service. And so, uh, man, we're with you, and we're praying for you, and we're thrilled that you are in this, and we have not forgotten you and, and will not forget you. So we're rooting hard for you, okay? We love you. Know that. We are continuing the found series this week, and the tagline of this series is, is this right here. It's, it's what if what we've been searching for our entire lives has actually been seeking to find us? And, and here's the premise of the series, that every one of us are looking for something. We're looking for something that will work. We're looking for something that will bring us monumental joy. We are looking for something that will solve all of our problems. And the bottom line is this. We are all, every one of us in this room, I think everyone on the planet, we are looking for something that will take care of everything. Every one of us in this room, no matter how young you are as kids, no matter who's the oldest person in this room, and all of us in between, we are all looking for something, that one thing that can take care of everything else. And what I want to do over the next couple of weeks is talk about two prominent things that we look to that we hope can take care of everything else. One is money and the other is relationships. Now, we typically have two different views on this. When we think about pastor or church giving a money. So I'm like, oh man, they want something from me. Uh, but come back next week. Those of you that feel that way today about money, come back next week because I know you're convinced that pastor is going to give you three steps to find your soulmate next week. And so just come on in and um, we'll set that up. We're going to do a speed dating thing on the stage. Instead of the worship music next week, we're going to actually hook you guys up um, in the best way. Uh, but, but what's amazing when you, when someone talks about money, whether it's God, whether it's the guy in my role or or the church in general, the idea is that, oh, something's wanted from us, but every other subject matter that comes up, we believe that something's wanted for us, right? So if you talk about spiritual growth, it's like, Ben, I can't believe you want that from me. 
right? Or if we talk about loving your neighbors, I cannot believe that. No, you see something is for you. And so what I want to do today, I want to tell you a couple of things. This, a, this is not a giving sermon, though we will talk about giving in the sermon because I do not know how to talk about money as the center of your life without that um, subject underneath money coming up. Um, this is about a found sermon. This is about what you and I look to place our hope in, trust, love, look for our security in, look for our hope for the future. And we look to it to solve all of our problems. And so um, I hope this will be helpful for you. Jesus spoke more about money and possessions than he did practically anything else with the exception of the kingdom of God. And when he spoke about the kingdom of God, he was oftentimes talking about treasure or the way things work or where do you look for your treasure. Um, but he spoke more about money and possessions than anything else. And those of us that are super attracted to Jesus, um, we may struggle to know that he talked about that more than he spoke about heaven and hell, right? More than he spoke about a lot of things. He talked about money, stuff, possessions. He didn't call it stuff. Obviously he spoke a different language, but he talked about money and possessions. And some of us may like, oh, I just don't know. Well, you're in good company today if you're a fan of Jesus, but you're not so sure you want him affecting what's going on in your bank account and your view and your usage of money. You're in good company because what I want to do today is show you two guys in the scriptures. One of them um, acted very differently than the other, but they had a lot of similarities when things, when things begin. And I don't think it's because Jesus wants something from us. I believe he wants something for us. And Jesus knows in every culture, in every part of history, that money can naturally become what is center stage for us. And I just want you to think going into this to help yourself, what is my attitude? What is my approach of? And how do I view the money I do have and the money I wish I had? Anybody else got more in the wish you had category than the you have category? I know what that's like. Um, but I want you just to think about that and, and to ask yourself this resounding question throughout our time this morning. Um, is money a part of your life or is it the central part of your life? Is money a part of your life or is it the central part of your life? And what's interesting, you cannot answer that question based on your level of wealth or your lack of wealth. You cannot even answer that question based on whether you want to be a follower of Jesus or you don't want to be a follower of Jesus. What happens in all, oftentimes is we, we, we think that people who are associated with Jesus get all of the big ideas in life right. And people who are not associated with Jesus, some of us think as Christians, they always get the big ideas like money wrong. But what you see all throughout the scriptures are people who were really closely affiliated with Jesus and they were on really complete opposite ends of the spectrum when it came to money. Does Judas come to mind for anybody? I always thought, just like many of you think this morning, that Judas, his, his bad rap came because he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And that is true. But in John chapter 12, I was reading recently, you know what else? It says that Judas, from time to time, he was accustomed to reaching into the money bag already. So he didn't become a bad person when Jesus was uh, arrested and betrayed. This is who he was. He had sat around Jesus. He had seen Jesus not have any earthly wealth. He had seen Jesus talk about the kingdom of God, talk about what happens in our hearts. And yet he still, see, having daily contact with Jesus, he still couldn't get money out of the center of his own heart. At the end of Acts chapter 4, you see a beautiful community forming, the kind that we envision here at Epic in San Francisco. People had a lot of need in that first century church. And so those who were in the church who owned land, they began to sell their land and bring it uh, to the apostles' feet to distribute it to anyone who had need. And it was this beautiful thing. Just check out the end of Acts chapter 4. But at the beginning of Acts chapter 5, there's a couple. They do the same thing. They sell all of their land or a piece of their land. And then they bring some money to lay it at the apostles' feet. But they told the leaders that this is everything that we sold the land for. And uh, they were lying and instantly they were struck dead on the spot. I don't think that's going to happen this morning, but you know, just, you, might, you might want to ask your neighbor if that's you. 
Like, is that, is that, what are the chances of you um, getting that experience this morning? People associated with Jesus who want to be affiliated, who actually even, you're going to see in a second, I'm going to show you, show you two guys. So we're going to look at two texts. One's in Mark chapter 10. The other is Luke chapter 19. Feel free to go ahead and turn there. Any of you that grew up going to church and did the Bible drill thing, you, sh- you're, you should get pretty jazzed up about this. We're going to do multiple scriptures and you're going to have uh, four seconds to find the second one. But uh, Mark chapter 10, if you need a Bible, raise your hands. Just keep them up high. We'll get one into your hands. We'll tell you what page number it's on whenever we get there. Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 19. We want to look at two, two guys. We want to compare them. And we want to see what does it look like when Jesus is at the center? And what does it look like when money is at the center of our lives? And the surprising thing about today's message is, even for me, is that like it seems to be about money in my mind, but this is not about money. You're going to hear a lot about eternity in both of these texts. You're going to hear a lot about what money has to do with where both of these individuals, best we understand from the Gospels, where both of them end up spending their in, entire eternity. So even if you're like, oh, I don't care about money, it's, it's not just money. We're going to talk about eternity here. So let's stand together. Luke, uh, we'll start in Mark chapter 10, sorry. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, and then just keep your place in Luke 19 also. And what you're going to see, a lot of things from these two guys, but a couple of things you're going to see. You're going to see one of these individuals being convinced that Jesus wants to take something from them. You're going to see another individual being convinced that Jesus wants to give something to them. And what I also want you to see is that every one of us in this room, our lives, our view on money, we either mirror one of these guys or the other, okay? We, we are alike in one way with, or in ways with one of these individuals or we're alike the other. I think that's true across the spectrum. So let's see who we want to be like and who we are really like. Mark ten seventeen, And as he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Turn over to Luke 19. Are you making an opinion yet about which one you want to be? Anybody? Like, I want to be the rich young man. I don't care what happened. I just want to be rich. 19, 1 through 10. He entered Jericho, that's Jesus again, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. You're like, oh, I'll be either one of them. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw, that's the religious leaders, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Yep. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You may be seated.
Isn't it fun when you just stuff pops up while you're reading something? So I just saw something that I had never seen until just reading it right here in this moment. The word defrauded is used in both in both stories. I just noticed that, just letting you know what I'm seeing. Um, it, which is interesting because I want you to look at how the similarities are for these two individuals. And then I want you to look at the differences. There's similarities. There's a few of them. I want to talk about those first. And then I want us to look at the vast differences and what happened on this day for each of these men. And then we want to look at the trajectory of each of their futures. And we want to ask ourselves, who are we? Are we the rich young man or are we Zacchaeus? Here's a couple of their similarities. They were both wealthy and they were both super interested in Jesus. They were both wealthy and they were super interested in Jesus. But there's something else I want to make sure that you catch before we get to all the other good stuff. Not only were they both wealthy, not only were they super interested in Jesus, um, to borrow uh, Bono's lyrics for a second, they still hadn't what? Really? 16 of you? They still haven't found what they're looking for. Thank you. You guys are gonna have to come play it, I guess, man. I don't know. They, they hadn't found what they were looking for, both of them. They had amazing amounts of wealth. And you would think, if you had that kind of money, we could all name the things we would be doing besides looking for a poor man named Jesus, right? Like, Ben, that doesn't sound like the Sunday school answer. But listen, I'm just being honest. If I had the kind of wealth that apparently these two individuals had, there was a lot of things I could find to do that would never become boring to me, at least in my mind. But they had a ton of wealth, and yet neither of them are ultimately satisfied. Don't miss this. Because what you and I tend to do, we'll talk more about this in a moment, is we tend to have that magic number out there, and we're just like, if I just get to that number, right? Anybody ever said that? Anybody? Not looking up, just assuming. We all had that number, and we made a promise to God, God, if we just get to that number, I'll never ask for anything else. I'll even become generous and help people out. God, if I just get to that number. Anybody make that promise? And then you couldn't keep it because you moved to San Francisco? Like, <laughs> God, I know I said 60000 but I cannot. Uh, it got, I'm in a 160000 God, and then I will be generous, and then I'll be a good boy or a good girl. And we have that set up, but these guys, they had, they had the magic number. At least they had our magic number, but it wasn't their magic number. It didn't satisfy them. It didn't keep them. It did not secure them. It did not give them all of the hope and contentment and joy that they assumed that it would have before they had this amount of money. And for most of us, we're never going to be like these two guys in this way. And so we keep telling ourselves, when I get there one day, then I know it's going to take care of me. And these guys would come and tell us, like, no, we got there. The number that you have is your magic number. We got there. And guess what? We're still looking for something. And they had gotten rumors, rumor, there have been rumors flying about Jesus. And so both of them are looking for Jesus. One in a tree, the other one finds Jesus, comes up, runs up to him, and kneels down. But what I want to do is talk about the vast differences in these two individuals, Zacchaeus and the rich young man. And again, I want you to be asking yourself, which one of the two are you? When the mirror is held up out of these two texts, which one most resembles you? Which one most resembles, which one most resembles me? The very first difference I see from these two is their approach to Jesus' invitation for salvation. How they respond to Jesus' invitation for salvation, very, very different. In Luke 19, 9, it says this. Jesus makes a pronouncement about Zacchaeus, and he says, Today, salvation has come to this house. Today, salvation has come to this house. Which means that Zacchaeus was willing to trust Jesus as his Savior, although he had spent his entire life up until this point trusting what? Money. My money will save me. It will make me secure. So he keeps taking in, in an unethical way. He keeps taking money from everyone in the community. He's a chief tax collector. He goes and imposes things that aren't even part of the law. And, and he's, he's, a, he's a wealthy tax collector. But on this day, things change. 
On this day, Zacchaeus finds a savior that's a more worthy savior than money has been to him. And the rich young man, he has this invitation too. He comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I what? Do to inherit eternal life. And then Jesus starts listing the commands. And the guy's got to be feeling pretty confident, right? Have you ever been in a job interview and you're nervous going into the interview, but they start saying you need all these requirements. And as they start listing the requirements, you're like, yeah, I did that in third grade, right? You feel, you feel pretty good. Now, I've got to say this. I don't know how this guy really had done all of these things. Like maybe the first five commandments Jesus names, but the last one. Have you ever seen a kid who honored their mother and father 100% of the time? Anybody? Like, does that kid exist? 99%, right, guys? But 100%. And, and, and he says, so Jesus lays all of these things out, and the guy's like, I've done it. Which is very interesting when you have a salvation conversation about these two guys. Which one of them, if you had met them and seen their moral records, which would you have thought would probably get into the kingdom of God? Rich young man, right? Why? Because he's the guy at the office that has integrity. He's the guy that calls his mom when you forget to call your mom, right? She's the lady that has never done anything wrong in terms of stealing or lying. Of course he'll go in. The, The guy says that he's never defrauded anyone. And Zacchaeus said what? I've defrauded everyone. Right. And so I'm going to pay it back. I just noticed that, by the way, as I said a second ago, um, he's defrauded everyone, everyone that he can defraud. He has defrauded. This guy hasn't defrauded anyone. One gets salvation and it isn't the one that you and I would have predicted. My role here is not to scare us to death this morning, but at least to put a little bit of check in our hearts to go, hey, what am I depending on for my own salvation? Is Jesus my savior or am I looking to something else to rescue me? The rich young man wasn't able to look to his money ultimately for salvation. He wasn't able to look to his great moral record for salvation. We should be clear in our hearts and ask ourselves this question. What am I looking to as savior? What am I looking to secure me? What am I looking to rescue me? What am I looking to place my hope in? And Zacchaeus finds it in Christ. The rich young man doesn't. So that's one way they're very different, how they respond to the salvation message of Jesus. The second way they're different is that one was able to give their money away while the other one was unable to give their money away. One was able to give a large sum of money away, and the other one, best we can tell, wasn't even willing to give any of his money away. He didn't even try to make a deal with Jesus, did he? Jesus like, I want you to give all of it. He, didn't even, he wasn't even like, what about that 10% thing, Jesus? Right? <laughs> that was a challenge before, but now, Jesus, that seems easy. Um, he, he, he didn't even try to do that. And yet Zacchaeus does. Now, we have this conversation all the time. If you have a church background, uh, and if you don't, I'll try to bring it up to speed. There's this question all the time, like, does God really expect us to tithe, which is to give a tenth of our income to him? Does he expect that? And this is where everybody's like, man, I hope your answer agrees with me, Ben. I hope your answer agrees with me. If your answer agrees with me, I'm going to say the pastor said, and if it doesn't, I'm going to write you an email. <laughs> Here's what we know. Let me just give you facts, and then, and then we'll continue to interpret it for ourselves. We know that the tithe shows up before the law. Go all the way back to Genesis before the law comes in Exodus. We know that the tithe shows up in the law. And we know that Jesus references, as, references it as a positive thing in the Gospels. Even while he's pointing out that there are things that they were lacking. He commended them for their tithing. Let's start there. Secondly, when people talk about the tithe no longer being in play, they talk about this whole idea of us being under grace. And we are. Aren't you glad? Law or grace? What do you guys want? Yeah, we want grace. We want grace. But what's incredible to me, the people that argue grace typically aren't the people that are the most generous people I spend my time with. What about you? And what I want to do is just use these two stories. We're not going Old Testament here, okay? Old Testament valid. I teach from it often. We're staying with two New Testament guys. 
How did they handle the tithing issue? What do you mean? Well, what were the percentages these guys were asked to give or were led to give? For the first one, Jesus said what? 100%. All of a sudden, we're like, I'll do the 10. Right? Zacchaeus. Doesn't say Jesus asked him to give anything. What did Zacchaeus fell felt led to give when he understood the grace of Jesus in his life, when he understood that he had finally found a worthy Savior who had been so generous to him, what did Zacchaeus give away? 50%. Anybody voting for 10? Anybody? Like me. Now, I do not believe that unequivocally God wants 100% of our money back to him. I do not unequivocally believe that we need to give 50% of it back to him. But I think we need to be careful when we ask the questions, what does generosity look like in my life? October 7th, there was an article published in the San Francisco Chronicle. Note, that's the Chronicle. It's not a church magazine. It's not something Christian. I know you guys didn't know that, but um, this is from the San Francisco Chronicle, October 7th. And they they published a report from the Chronicle of Philanthropy. This is October 7th. You can get it off sfgate.com. This is where I got it from. And they did, using data from 2012, they looked at the 50 metro areas, 50 largest metro areas around the United States. And, And we would know that we would rank in the top group, if not not number one in terms of wealth, right? Well, in the top 50, when it came to philanthropy and charitable giving, where do you guys think we ranked? 45th. A whopping 2.4% was given away. But that's okay because we don't have to compare ourselves to the top. We just need to compare ourselves to someone below us, right? And San Jose came in at 48th. So just when you see your San Jose friends, like, we are so much more generous than you guys are. (laughs) Three places ahead of you. Don't tell them where we're at, but 2.4%. Now, what's interesting, a couple quotes. This lady's name is Palmer, who wrote the article initially in the the Philanthropy Journal. It says, the wealthiest Americans are giving a smaller share of their income to charity, while poor and middle-income people are digging deeper into their wallets. Listen to this sentence. I thought it was very interesting. Remember, this is from the Chronicle. Palmer was not sure why the Bay Area ranks so low. It could be that people here are less connected to a church. Interesting. Again, that's not a Christian perspective. As far as we know, she's not a person of faith. Um, But just in a philanthropy study, uh, they were updating the 2006 version with the 2012 version. And they're just noting that around the nation, it had gone down. And it had also gone down here, the place where there's been more affluence over the last six years, my guess, um, maybe than anywhere else. So it's just interesting Interesting thing to, to think about. When it comes to giving, whether, when we think about money, whether it's the center of our life or Jesus can be the center of our life, when it comes to giving, I, I think a, the obvious seems to be that we think that if we give, it's somewhat enslaving to us or it's limiting to us at least, which is true if you just look at the math on paper. And, and that when we choose not to give, it's actually providing us with some security because we're, we're, we're not relinquishing that. But I want to show you one of my, my favorite counterintuitive scriptures in the entire Bible. It's Proverbs eleven twenty four. It's very counterintuitive to me, and maybe you'll find it to be the same. But Proverbs eleven twenty four says this, that one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Now, I'll leave the scripture up there on the screen. It, it seems backwards, doesn't it? You would think it would say one gives freely and only suffers want, right? Like, because I have that attitude sometimes. Anybody else? Like, if I give, what about me? And, and you give me a chance to justify it, and I can get there quick. And we're doing the orthodontist thing. Rumor has it the second kid's got to go get braces. I mean, you know, I can get there fast. And we would think that one withholds what he should give, and the tagline would be, and it grows all the richer. The math makes sense, doesn't it, if that were the, the verse? 
and I'm not here. I, I, what I want to do is get some awesome hair. Well, for lots of reasons, but I want to get some awesome, some awesome televangelist hair and just go all, show me your prayer cloth and I'll show you the blessings of God, right? You just put your prayer cloth up to the TV screen or your phone or your iPad and all of a sudden the windows of heaven coming out after you. I don't really want to be that guy. I would like some awesome hair, but, but I will say this. There is something a bit mysterious to me about how this works when we begin to say that, God, everything I've been given is yours, and I'll do with it whatever you ask me to do. I'm not, like, I, I can just tell you, just personally, over the last five years, Sean and I have increased our giving every single year, um, and, 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 and not without the discussion of, if we do this, what are we going to have to miss out on, Right? Just getting to the discussion, but also going, you know what? We, we want to do this. We, we, ha- we have a commitment to this, and it's amazing how God's taking care of us. This is one of my favorite conversations I have with my staff team. Some of the most generous people that are in this church, and it's not because it's their job and it pays their paycheck, but some of the most generous people in the church are the staff that I work with on a daily basis. And they go without so that they can do certain things. Right now, and he would never tell you this, but right now, Tim and Kristen Milner, our executive pastor who's just up here, they're going without some things because they are building a house for their compassion child in Uganda. A house. Not a mill, though they're doing that. We're all doing it. Many of us are doing that. They are building little Dalton a house because he lives in this terribly flooded region where some of his relatives have actually drowned because of how bad it gets. They're building him a house. Incredible. It's amazing what we can do when we realize that what God has given us is his and we can use it directed towards the things that he calls us to do with it. And there's great freedom there. And I just want to say that to you. There's great freedom there. It seems restrictive, like we're, we're, we're lessening or we're, we're limiting ourselves and our ability, but in reality is we're actually increasing it. The question, we, we can justify like, oh, I can't believe the church, or I don't, feel, I don't know how the church will use it, or I don't know if this ministry or this organization will use it, but sometimes what we cover with so many other excuses is just a trust issue. At the end of the day, we just don't believe that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. And, and we cannot have this thought in mind. Let me just blow up some rationale here this morning. We can't have this thought in mind like, oh, I think God's leading me to give, but I think if I do, the same God won't take care of me. Do you see how that can't coexist? Really? The God who asks you to be generous is going to be the God who's not going to provide for you? I know in my heart that can be the thought. What if, God, I'm convinced you want us to do this, but I just don't know. Anyway, I think that's a big piece, how we can, how we can know whether or not we're sending our lives around money or sending our lives around Jesus. So just ask this question. Are you able to give any of your money away? That's not the end of the question, because everybody's like, yeah, man, I tip you guys a 20 every time the bucket comes by. Here's the full question. Here's the full question. Are you, willing to, are you able to give your money away willingly, sacrificially, and joyfully? It's a different question. It's a different question. I just don't think we need to kid ourselves about what's central in our lives. So... They respond differently to salvation. They respond differently to the whole giving initiative. And, and they also respond differently with how their story ends. I want you to notice how their story ends. And I want you to think about you and I, when we encounter Jesus, hopefully that's happened this morning or it's happening in your personal life. When we encounter Jesus, we walk away typically not the same as we walked into the encounter with. And with Zacchaeus and the rich young man, one of their stories ends in great joy. The other ends in great sorrow. It says that Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully into his home. And that gladly, it doesn't say Jesus said, hey, you've got to go do this and do that. It says gladly Zacchaeus gave half his stuff to the poor and then he paid back 4X whatever he had defrauded from someone else. And that actually was the law, by the way, for him. Pay it back four times. 
But the 50%, that wasn't required of him, best we can tell from the scriptures and just from understanding the culture and the way things worked back then. But he did it with joy. His story ends in joy. He had found something better than money. He had found something more secure than money, something that would give him a greater hope than money. The rich young man, how does his story end? He walks away very what? Very sorrowful, which should surprise us. It would make sense for him to walk away sorrowful if he had to give up some of his possessions. But friends, he leaves with everything he came with. Why is he so sad? You ever seen children have to share? Anybody? Like, it doesn't matter that they have a hundred of the same Hot Wheels. You, you, you share one with Sarah, and all of a sudden, Johnny's like, I need that one. Right? But the rich young man, he doesn't, have, he doesn't even have that excuse. He's leaving with a hundred percent of what he had before he saw Jesus. Why is he sad? Because he knew he had to forfeit treasure in heaven because he was unwilling to forfeit treasure on earth. He didn't lose anything. He lost everything. He didn't lose anything. 100% of what he came in with, he's leaving with. But he lost everything. Isn't it amazing? He walks away with the stuff that one day back in the day promised him joy, and now he's got no joy. He's got all of his stuff. He's got no joy. Whatever we center our lives around really will determine everything else. Whatever you center your life around. And what's crazy, you don't have to possess the thing you're centering your life around, right? So all of us who in this room who don't consider ourselves wealthy, we're like, Ben, I could never center my life around wealth because I don't have any, right? This is the same person who next week will say, Ben, I can't center my life around my spouse because I don't have one. Listen. You do not have to possess something today to be able to center your life around it. If you say to yourself, if I get that, if I attain that, if she says yes, if the boss gives me the raise, then I will be secure. It's already at the center, even though it's not in your hands. It's true for whatever it is. It's true for whatever it is. Some of us still say, Ben, I want to live the kind of life that Zacchaeus seems to start living, but I still have that magic number out there. If I just make this, Ben, it's not crazy compared to other people around San Francisco. It's just, it's just this. If I just get the magic number, it's just this. Well, I want to show you a verse uh, from Ecclesiastes 5.10 for any of us in the room who have that magic number. And maybe we all do in some ways. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Hear this. He who loves money, he who says, when I get that magic number, I will have everything. He says, no, you won't be satisfied. He who loves wealth will never be satisfied with his income. So all of us magic number people, here's a word for all of us. There is no magic number. Because when you get there, you have a new magic number. There's no destination for the magic number. You'll, you'll never get there. Now, is there a number, a realistic number that it takes for us to live here? Right? <laughs> Seems to be escalating. Yeah, there's a number. Math is math. But if you have the magic number and that takes care of everything in your life, you're never going to get there. I'm never going to get there. So what I want to do to wrap this up is just to ask ourselves again. I'm going to give you a few litmus tests for how you can know whether you're Zacchaeus or the rich young man. The first kind of introductory question is this. Here's a way you can know. Are you willing to do with your money whatever Jesus asks you to do with it? 
No, I don't, I'm not inserting Jesus for, for Pastor Ben. Okay, not at all. Just are you willing to do with your money whatever Jesus asks you to do? If it's downsizing, if it's giving so someone else can go on a mission trip, if it's uh, whatever it is, are you, are you willing to do whatever he asks? And again, you're only helping yourself if you're honest in this questioning. Second question is, do you ever obsess or do you always obsess about having enough? Again, we live in a place where this is easy to obsess over. I mean, I don't know anyone with an OCD personality, but I know you guys do, right? No, that, that, that is me. Sorry. It's easy to obsess over this, whatever part of the money issue it is. Next, are you able to give it away joyfully? And I think two important adverbs are um, proportionally and consistently. If I don't make a proportional and consistent commitment as I lead my family, I know how it's going to go. Something's always going to come up, doesn't it? Is it just our family where something always comes up? Normally, it's like a ticket, like a, not a baseball ticket, like a speeding ticket, you know, or not so much speeding, but more parking. <laughs> There's always something that comes up. My kids want to do stuff like, Why? Listen, you guys don't need any extracurricular activities, you know, like just play somewhere, you know, <laughs> something always comes up. And so that's been a huge just help for us personally. Next thing I want to ask you is, is your view and use of money, is it in the pattern of the culture or is it counter to the culture? And you can ask this about anything in your life. If there's anything we've been called to, it's to live amongst the people, but to live in a countercultural way amongst the people. Next question is, do you look to money to give you what only Jesus can truly give you? Do you look to money to offer you ultimate security, solve all of your problems, give you hope for the future? But let me sum it up with what the hardest one is, I think. Which pronoun best defines how you view your money? Mine or his? Not the 10%, not the 5%, not the 50%. How you view it holistically. Mine or his? Many of you know that our vision here at Epic Church is to orient our entire lives around Jesus. And if we, whether it's our relationships or our work or our income or what we do with our time, if, if that all is mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, let's not fool ourselves about being followers of Jesus. He wants all of us. He's the God who gave all of us, uh, all of all of himself to us. Second Corinthians eight, nine. It's a text about generosity. Paul's talking to the Corinthian church that they need to be more like the Macedonian church. And what he says in verse nine, when he gets like the pinnacle of his exam, like his best example about generosity, he doesn't talk about money at all. Here's what he talks about. He says, for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor for your sake, for your sake, for your sake. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We need to examine how it sounds when we tell Jesus, Jesus, we see what you've done, but we want to hold on and it be ours. He didn't give us 10%, did he? Think of us 40% or even 99%. He went all in. Because he went all in in his priceless sacrificial death, you and I will spend eternity with him if we're willing to make him the center. 
And I just want to ask you, we're going to move into a time of communion in just a moment. And this is for those of us who have said to Jesus, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you more than I trust my spouse. I trust you more than I trust my money that I do have or that I could have. Jesus, I trust you more than I trust my intellect. I trust you more than I trust uh, my skills and experience. Jesus, I trust you. Friends, if you're counting on something else, it will fall apart in the end. Would you pray with me? We're going to move into a time of communion, and it's our first time in this space. So maybe, maybe keep your eyes open for a second. I need to cover a couple of practical things. We have two stations. There's one towards the back of the room, and there's one right up here at the front of the room. And what might make sense is for everyone kind of in this area to use this one, and, the, and everyone here, do we still want to do that? Everyone here use? All right. There's a lot of you, but... We can handle it. And so what we'll do, if you're in this section, we'll just make a line this way. Whenever you're ready to receive the elements, we'll go around to the wall, back wall, and come along this wall. And then you'll be able to come in and have a seat. And again, it's not a uniform thing, and it's not a fast thing. band's going to play a couple of songs. For those of you up here, you can use that back wall. We took a row out as well as this row. And uh, they'll be serving the elements right here during this time. We're going to do a couple of songs so that we're not in a hurry. And Jesus said to do this whenever we remember him, when we remember that he is the Savior who went all in. He is the one who paid the ultimate price so that you and I wouldn't have to pay for our own sins. But I want to challenge you again. If you've been looking to money or anything else to save you, at least in a functional way, I want to encourage you to place that saving faith in Jesus. He's a Savior who's worthy. He's worthy of what your security can be in. He's worthy of what your hope can be in. He's worthy to solve the issues that are fundamental to the core of your being. And then we'll come and we'll take of the elements and we'll worship and we'll reflect and we'll pray. And so um, would you stand and pray with me? Actually, stay seated and just, just pray with me. God, I thank you for just for the reality that you can be, you have everything it takes to be the center of my heart and the center of all of our hearts. Jesus, you know what happens in our hearts. You know the world in which we live. You know what we're tempted to center our lives around. God, many of us in this room, we are just like Zacchaeus and and the rich young man. We, We still haven't found what will satisfy us. So we raise the magic number, or some of us even, we raise a, a new relationship because we think, well, it's not that woman, it's not that man, it's, it's got to be the next one. God, some of us woke up this morning knowing that if we could just change industries this week, that that might do it for us. And if we could just find a spouse, if we could just, if we could just do something worthwhile, God, and we hang so many of our hopes on things that will never, never fulfill us in the end. Jesus, I thank you for your generosity. I thank you that you weren't afraid to transform the life of a very greedy man named Zacchaeus. And from all accounts, it seems like you weren't afraid to offer eternal life to the rich young man. But he already had a savior and he wasn't willing to forfeit that one. God, I pray we'd be willing to forfeit anything that's central in our lives besides you. God, the rich young man walked away with everything and, and yet in eternity walked away with nothing. God, I pray that you would engage our hearts along what we've heard today. As we celebrate communion now, I just pray that we would remember that you, out of your riches, became poor so that by your poverty we might have riches known as grace, known as mercy, known as forgiveness, known as love, known as eternity with you. God, you know in my own heart, I look to money to do for me what it can't do sometimes. God, we just say it as a community today. 
God, we realize money is a part of life, and I pray that as you become the center, that we will be strategic with it. I pray that it wouldn't rule our hearts, but that you would. We celebrate, Jesus, you going all in, not 10%, but 100%. We're grateful for it. In your name we pray. Amen. You have time to stand. You can pray. You can take of the elements whenever you're ready. And uh, let's just enter in and see what God might do in our hearts along with what we've heard today.